All right, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn in Mark chapter 7. And before I start going into the sermon proper, um, what we've been trying to do is we're trying to go through Mark chapters 1 through 8, and then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to kind of do like Christmas teaching series and stuff like that. And what's happened is, is I've fallen behind, and so I had to really pray about, okay, do I stay from behind or do I feel like God's calling me to kind of do kind of what I call a warp speed through some of the material without covering every verse. And so really feel like God's calling me just to cover a large um, section without reading every verse and teaching every narrative uh, in this section. So what I want to do right now is I just want to outline some of the passages that we'll kind of not be covering in depth. And so, um, so if you have a Bible, uh, please just kind of follow along and let me summarize some of this material. What I want to look at today is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And this is a confrontation with Jesus and the Pharisees about religiosity and legalism and what makes a person clean or unclean. So we'll cover that in detail. And then after that uh, is Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, which is about... Um, a Gentile woman's daughter who's demon-possessed, and she comes and asks Jesus uh, to take the demon away from her daughter. And she's a Gentile woman, and Jesus ends up doing this because of her faith. And so there's that section. Great narrative, great, great moment. We won't cover that in detail, though. And then Mark chapter 7, verses 31 uh, through 37 is a story about the deaf man who also had a speech impediment, He comes up to Jesus, or he's brought to Jesus by his buddies, and Jesus heals him so that he can talk plainly and he can see. And then in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, is the feeding of the 4,000, which is very similar uh, to what we looked at last week. The difference between this feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000 last week, outside of being 1,000 different, is that this is happening in Gentile territory, whereas last week was Jewish territory. So Jesus exists not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, for the whole world. And his work of salvation and provision is for anyone who believes, no matter what their gender or their race, Jesus is for the whole world. And then Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, the Pharisees demand a miraculous sign from Jesus, and that's evil to do that. To demand a sign, that's bad. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21 is the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus warns his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees, which we take to mean the unbelief of the Pharisees and Herod. And so the unbelief is kind of creeping into the disciples' lives, and Jesus warns them about that. And then finally this morning, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26 is the blind man who is healed by Jesus. And what's interesting about that healing is that it's progressive. He, he's blind, then Jesus heals him, and then he can see people, but it's blurry, and people look like trees. And then Jesus leads him to the deeper, more uh, crisp healing of being able to see things exactly as they are. Another great event. Now, All of these kind of events, these narratives are put together by Mark 
for a purpose, and the purpose is that most of those miracles, while they're similar to what we've looked at, they're all happening in Gentile territory. It's a more Gentile-flavored thing. And so Jesus, who as a human being is a Jewish rabbi, um, we believe son of God in the flesh, but he's Jewish. He's showing that he's not just fulfilling Jewish promises just for the Jews, but he's fulfilling the promise that God had for the world through the Jewish people. And that was important for the original audience, the church in Rome, a church that was composed of Jews and Gentiles, of a diversity of races of people coming together and figuring out that what can unite them in their racial diversity is the unity they have of faith in Jesus. So that kind of summarizes. So I just want to focus now on Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 23. So as I do so, let me pray for the sermon and then we'll kind of get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to come to your word um, and to believe that you're in conversation with us. Um, I pray that this wouldn't just be about chapters and verses and doctrine and dogma, but at the end of the day, the end result would be a relationship with you, a relationship filled with affection and worship, of desiring to glorify you with our lives, um, that we would be ruled by your glory. And so whatever I do, may it not get in the way of that. Whatever I say, may it not distract from what you are saying. And Holy Spirit, speak to this congregation. Um, I, I don't want a copy and paste sermon from the first service. I don't want it to be these same words or the same exact thing. I just want, I want a moment with you in the word for this congregation so that you can meet us where we're at and take us to where you're taking us. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I was thinking about this passage that we're going to look at, it's an issue about holiness. It's an issue about being clean in the presence of God. It's an issue about righteous living. It's an issue about what makes a person holy in the presence of God. And for you and I, as we study it, and as we think about it, and as we get real with the text, and, and we, we're not artificial with it, but as we think about it with some depth, the real question that, that hits me is, can people really be changed? I mean, can people be changed from brokenness to wholeness? Can people change patterns that they've had in their life for years? Um, and if you think about this in just regular relationships in life, you think about how difficult it is to change. How many of y'all know that? It's like so difficult to change. I mean, if you think about small things, I mean, poor Sherry, she's been married to me for 21 years. She, she's coming up on 22 years. This beautiful woman has had to put up with the same stupid things that I do. Like I leave the kitchen cabinets open when I go to get chips and for years she's been like can you close the cabinet when you're done with the chips you know and I try and I just won't change how many of y'all know what I'm talking about you know um, there's wives around the country that have been waiting for their husbands to finally put the toilet lid down after they're done and and it seems like they're never going to change he's never going to change 
But then there's more serious things. The family member that keeps falling back into alcoholism, the relapses, the drug addictions. Or maybe it's, maybe it's the harboring of years, the harboring of, 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 of an attitude of bitterness and anger and, and just you take three steps forward and then you, you fall back two steps and, and you wonder about yourself, will I ever really change? Will she ever change? Will he ever change? Is real human change possible? The older we get, the more skeptical we become. At least I do. How about you? When I was young and naive and believing in Jesus and going to church, of course people can change. Of course they can be transformed. But the more I walk through life, the more I look at my own heart, the more I look at my family members, the more I I look out, I begin to go, I don't know. Do people really ever change? People might replace, might quit one addiction and they replace it with another addiction. Do they really change? Can people change? Can my dad change? Can my mom change? Can my wife change? Can my husband change? Can my children change? There's two answers to that question, I believe. And the first is no. People can't change. They don't. They won't. They're not going to change. There's something about our brokenness that just, it just persists. And we don't change. And, and it's crazy. And yet the other answer is absolutely people can change. Absolutely. But we have to admit that we're up against a, a really big mountain. We're up against the mountain we were singing about this morning. We're up against a, a big wall of will I ever fundamentally change because when I look in my life as Paul used to say in Romans chapter 7 the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do are the very things I end up doing and and I know that the decisions I make are going to lead to my brokenness and broken relationships and and brokenness in my life and yet even though I don't want it and I don't want the results I I keep choosing it we're up against the wall if change is possible how can it happen We come to Mark chapter 7, and here's Jesus, man. He's standing on the stage of history. He's standing on the stage of of history and salvation, and he is saying he's the way to change, that he's got some kind of, of human transformation dynamic thing going on that he says, if you come to me, I can change you. Really? Really, Jesus? Because all I ever see is people continuing to be broken. If you came into this world to bring transformation, what is your method? What is your means of changing people's lives? What is the dynamic of human transformation according to Jesus, the Son of God? Mark chapter 7, I believe that his encounter with the Pharisees, he shows us two ways that do not bring transformation and change into people's lives, even though people keep going back to these same old, bad methods of human change, human modification. And so let's talk about what doesn't bring transformation to people's lives according to Jesus, the Son of God. The first thing, according to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1, is that human religious traditions do not change anyone. 
religiosity, legalism, human religious traditions can change no one. In fact, I would argue that what Jesus is saying, what the New Testament says is that religiosity has not only not improved the human condition, but religiosity makes the human condition worse. Everybody say worse. Worse. That clean, outward, good, moral religiosity that looks so pretty is actually a detriment to human transformation. You say, no. Let's look at it. Verse 1. Mark 7, verse 1, it says, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, and of course, there's the Pharisee. Anytime we see the Pharisees, we say, boo, boo. We don't like those Pharisees, religious elite leaders. They don't like Jesus. So if they don't like Jesus, anybody that doesn't like Jesus, we don't like. Can I get an amen? All right. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I like that dining couches. That's sweet. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? I love Jesus. He's so awesome. You hypocrites. As it is written... This is from Isaiah 29, verse 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, I love this. Obviously, the Pharisees are confronting Jesus with with their tradition and he's they're looking at his disciples and saying why don't they wash their hands now they're not worried about hygiene they're worried about their disciples being holy in the presence of God and for their traditions in order to be holy before God you had to wash your hands a certain way and you had to wash pots and pans and coppers and couches and everything in a certain way so that you would be holy in the sight of God and what Jesus does is he shows them that They are contrasting the traditions of the elders with the commandment of God. Now, the commandment of God is the Mosaic law. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the Word. It's Torah. And for Jewish people, they believe that Torah and Mosaic law was the mediator between God and human beings. They taught, and we believe, that God is holy and human beings are unholy. And that there has to be a way to make unholy people holy. And so Jewish people said the mediator, the thing that's going to make unholy people holy, is the law of God. And that if you're obedient to Torah, if you're obedient to the Ten Commandments, if you can fulfill the righteous duties of Moses, then you will be made holy in the presence of a holy God. 
Now, because they believed that the law of Moses was the mediator between people and God, what they had to do is they had to come up with more traditions and rules. The oral tradition, or the tradition of the elders, and they called this the fence of the law, because they created all these extra laws to fence in the law of Moses to guarantee that they could be obedient to the law of Moses in order to be right with God. And so they came up with all these washings and all these rules, and you got to wash your hands right, and you got to eat the right food, and you got to wash your forks and, and your, your pots and your pans just right so that you can guarantee that you are saved in the presence of a holy God. Jesus is showing them here, you've added to the law of Moses your own traditions and your own rules. You've assumed that it's possible through tradition, through human effort, through behavior modification, you've assumed that it's possible for sinful human beings to be obedient to the law of God. And yet at the end of the day, what you've only done is you've honored God with your lips. You've come up with all these outward things that make you look spiritual, make you look religious, make you look important, make you look like you have the proper dogma on the outside. But underneath that, that nice veneer of all those clean pots and clean hands is a heart that's far from God. Isaiah saw this all the way back in the Old Testament. People would go to temple People would sing their songs. People would do their church duty. And then they would leave the temple. They would leave their religious festivals and celebrations. And they would be just as hypocritical as anybody else who were far from God. They would honor God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. This tradition not only cannot change a person, it actually ends up making human rebellion even worse and so he gives a great example let's look at this let's look at how tradition not only can't make us right with God but it actually makes us worse look at verse 9 he said to them you have a fine way I love that in the Greek you have a fine way very emphatic you have you're so particular in the way you're very specialized in the way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition." That you have handed down and many such things you do. Now, this is great. And this is why I get paid the big bucks. Can I get an amen? Because I got to explain that passage to you in a way that's understandable. Right? This is why you need me. You need me. That's so exciting. What he's talking about is he brings up an example of how the traditions actually make people worse in the presence of God. And his example is the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother. It's one of the most venerated commandments in all of Jewish history and tradition. 
The foundation of a, of a righteous society and people is the foundation of a home, of a mom and a dad and children and obedience and authority structures. And so what they did is they came up with all these rules and they said, listen, to apply the fifth commandment, you need to take care of your parents when they get old. When they get older and they can't provide for themselves, your property and your possessions should also be used for them in their old age so that they can be taken care of. That is the fifth commandment. That's a good application. And that's still a pretty good application, isn't it? But what they did is they came up with this law of Corbin. And the law of Corbin was any property or possession that you dedicated to God and the temple could not be used by anybody else. Now, you could still use that property and possession until you were dead. And then when you were dead, that property or possession would go to temple, would go to priests, would go to the, go to the infrastructure of religious society. And so what they did is they took this law and they worked around the fifth commandment and they said... I want to continue to use my property without sharing it with my parents. I want to continue to use my possessions for my own personal use. I don't want to share it with the rest of my family. And so I'm going to declare it Corbin and it'll be used. And then when I die and I can even look religious doing this, I can look spiritual. Look, all my possessions are dedicated to God. And Jesus is saying... This is what you people do. This is what religion does. It covers up hypocrisy. It's, you know what religion is and religiosity is? Religiosity is a way of covering our life, making us look holy, and yet we can still harbor the same principles that irreligious people hold in their hearts. Moral people... Religious people need forgiveness as much as irreligious, immoral people because of this very principle. Religious people have to believe in Jesus to be forgiven. The most moral people in the world, the most civilized people in the world must be forgiven because underneath the veneer is some form of rot, of hypocrisy. You see, the problem is, is that our hearts, when we were born, we were born with original sin. And that original sin wants to rebel. We want to live a life of rebellion. We want to rebel against any authority, any God, any structure. And that's why we all, we create laws, we, uh, we acknowledge laws, but then we break the very laws that we acknowledge. Why? Because we have a rebellious nature. Our problem is not outside of us. Our problem is inside of us. Even secular, irreligious people come up with their own rules, their own laws that they hold everybody else accountable to, but then they don't live up to their own rules and laws that they hold everybody accountable to. How many of y'all know that? So I've got all these expectations I'm going to put on you. I expect you to love me and forgive me when I mess up. I expect you to tolerate my imperfections. I expect you to, to accept me. I expect you to think I'm a great preacher. Can I get an amen? But I might not think you're a good parishioner. I, I, might, I might not forgive you. I might not tolerate you. I might not do that. Why? Because I'm rebelling against my own rule. Because everything in me is a rebel. 
And everything in you is a rebel. And what we do with religion is the same thing we do with booze or drugs or whatever else it is, sexual immorality. We do with religion everything we do out in the world is we use religion to cover up our own rebellion. This is the world we live in. This is why people don't change. Because people, myself included, we're rebels. We have our own oral traditions. Our own rules so that we can make sure that life is self-serving and about me. Our own methods of fixing ourselves. And Jesus didn't come to pat us on the head and say that's okay. And he didn't come to pat good religious people on the head and say, oh, I'm so proud of you for coming up with all these extra rules to be righteous. He came to say, man, underneath all those rules is hypocrisy and your heart is far from God. Beloved, if people are going to change and be transformed, it is not going to come from religious tradition. But the second thing it's not going to come from is a diet. A diet might be good for... Uh, a healthy eating plan might be good for our, our health, but it's certainly not going to make us more religious. And, of course, Jewish people always thought that what you put in your body with food would possibly make you more holy in the sight of God. And so Jesus addresses that. So let's look at this interesting passage. It's very interesting. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus talks to the people, and it says he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all you... And understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the house, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, love this, I think this might have created a snicker with the disciples. It doesn't in most churches, but it should. But listen to this, he says to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and it is expelled? It is expelled. You're like, what's the Greek word for expelled? Sewer. It goes into the sewer. And he goes, all food does is it goes into your stomach and... It goes out into the sewer. That's gross. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now what's he saying there? You're like, I don't struggle with the diet. It's not like I'm going to go to a diet and say, oh, a diet's what's going to make me holy. A diet's what's going to make me transform. But the principle that's happening here is what we all are tempted to believe. And that is that if we cover ourselves with the right environment, if we do the right things to our body... If we take in the right things and I can be changed, if I wear the right clothes, if I drive the right car, if I live in the right house, my my life will be transformed. I'll begin to behave better because I have everything I ever dreamed I could have. If I'm famous or rich or religious or if I wear religious garb or whatever's on the outside of me, if I can take what's on the outside and bring it into my life, then I will be transformed. And Jesus says that what defiles a person is not what comes on the outside in. What defiles a person is what's already inside. Not what's in the stomach or on the body. But what messes up our life is what's in the heart. 
And he's looking at the Jewish people. He said, man, you took the Mosaic law of food and kosher and all those things, and, and you've, you've confused the whole issue. You've acted like if you eat kosher, if you eat food just religiously right, you'll actually be more holy. And he's like, y'all's problem isn't what's on the outside of you. Your problem is what's on the inside of you. That works in the secular world as well as the irreligious world. I just watched the other night one of the most depressing documentary I've ever watched for my life. Don't watch it. On Whitney Houston. Have y'all seen this documentary on this woman, this beautiful woman who had a beautiful voice? She had the biggest house, man. She had it all. She sang the greatest national anthem ever in the history of national anthem. Can I get an amen? People loved this woman. She had everything that you guys have always dreamed of at one point in time or another in your life. Fame, money, riches, great talent. And no matter what she put on, no matter what house she lived in, no matter how much acclaim she had, what was wrong with her wasn't what she didn't have. What was wrong with her was her identity and her heart. You see, diet can't change anybody. Changing your self-image, changing your gender, changing whatever else you might think you can change to transform your life, to make it more better, to make it more holy. It won't work. It's not about your body. It's not about the physical stuff of your world. It's about the spiritual issues of your heart, the harmony and the unity and the atonement that we need with our heart. It's an identity issue that's not physical, but is spiritual. And Jesus is saying, listen, you can take in all the stuff you want. You're still going to have to go to the bathroom. You're still going to have to go into your bed and go to sleep. You're still going to have to need all these things on the outside. At the end of the day, transformation isn't about the stomach. It's not about your skin color. It's not about your gender. It's not about who you have sex with. Sex is not your God. Sex is not going to save you. It's not about your money. Money is not the Holy Spirit. You can't be changed by any of that. Jesus is saying, it's your heart. So he gives us a solution. If it's not tradition and if it's not diet that changes us, what changes us? I want to change he goes on to say, in verse 20, man, this, this, right here, this is the payoff, right here. I've made you work hard today. Here we go, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, beloved, there's not one person here, none of you, myself included, that couldn't look at that vice list. It's a list of vices and say about one of those vice lists, that vice is in my heart. That is my life. Some of you, your vice is adultery. Some of you, it's evil thoughts. Some of you, it's murder or anger or 
coveting or wickedness or you're deceitful or you've slandered people this week or if you're like, well, I'm not going to admit to any of it. None of it belongs to me. I'm none of those things you just said. How about pride? All of us could do the pride one, could we not today? Absolutely. I'm so filled with pride. I would love to say I'm very humble, but the moment I say that would be a prideful moment. These are symptoms. These are symptoms. And your symptom might be different than mine. I might not be walking in the same expression of sickness that you are. My thing on this list, which no, I'm not going to tell you what it is, except for pride. But my thing on this list might be different than your thing on this list, but here's what we have in in common. The common root of all of them is the same problem in all of us. It's our heart. It all flows from a heart. And you know what tradition and diets try to do? They deal with the symptoms. I'm going to make sure you're not an adult, an adulterer, an adulteress. I'm going to make sure that, that you don't practice deceit. I'm going to make sure that you don't murder anybody. I'm going to fence you in so that you don't do all of these bad things. And Jesus said, I didn't come here to do that. I didn't come for moral, for for a, a behavior modification. I didn't come to give you a program, a list of things to do or not to do. I came to give you a new identity. I came to give you a heart that thirsts and desires God, that treasures God above all things because Jesus understands a principle that is the most important principle. Whatever rules our heart rules our behavior. Whatever rules our heart rules our decisions. You have a God Today you are worshiping somebody or something and that somebody or something is determining your behavior and the decisions you're making about your life and Jesus comes to be the new ruler who will lead you to the true meaning of life. He wants to rule your heart so that your desires will begin to choose holiness out of love, not holiness out of obligation, not duty without desire, but duty flowing from desire. Jesus came to do the greatest miracle of all, which is to transform human hearts. Tradition can't change your heart. And diets can't change your heart. But Jesus, the power of Jesus can change your heart. That's it. And most people, they don't get it. Because they don't want it to be that simple. They don't want it to be about surrender or I'm going to give my life all the way over to Jesus or I'm going to make him Lord of my life. I want a program. I want a formula. You want to know why we want a formula? Because we want control. And Jesus says, you got to lose control. You got to come to me with empty hands and say, man, I've tried the traditions and I've tried the diets and I've tried the world and I've tried, the, I've tried all those things outwardly that the world or religion has told me and none of it works. And now I'm coming to you not as a program, but as the person of God, not as a religion, but as a relationship that I need more than anything else because I need a new identity that's not a physical identity. It is a spiritual identity. Jesus will do it, but it is a miracle. Listen, here's the wall we're up against. That's why Jesus came. 
You want to know why he came? Because nothing else is going to work. That's why he does the miracles. That's why he heals the, the Gentile woman's uh, uh, demon-possessed uh, daughter because he wants us to know that our salvation, the change of our heart, is no less of a miracle than a blind man seeing and demons coming out and crippled people walking and, and people with speech impediments being made to be able to talk plainly. It's no less powerful what Jesus does in our life to transform our life than it is when he heals all these people. It's a miracle. It's a power that Jesus gives to us. So you got to remember, what's the gospel? What's the good news? What am I called to announce? I'm called to announce that, that we are unholy in the sight of a holy God. God is holy. He has everything I want. And I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get what he has in a lot of different ways. And I'm trying to get to this holy God and there's a great chasm and what the gospel is is that Jesus comes to bridge that chasm and he dies for our sins on the cross to provide atonement. He defeats death. And what the Bible says is that when I believe in him, I am made holy by faith alone in the sight of God. I have the righteousness of Jesus. I am declared innocent even though I'm, even though I'm guilty. And my heart begins to be transformed as I treasure this truth, as I embrace this truth. And I come to Jesus and I say, I'm right. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, you are righteous in the sight of God today. You're holy by faith alone. You're like, well, I don't feel holy because you just gave me that bad list. I saw a couple of things in there. But here's the secret. If you believe in Jesus, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit begins to give you assurance of this. He begins to cause you to walk in this. He doesn't tell you to make yourself something that you're not. He tells you to walk in what you have in Jesus Christ, to treasure Jesus Christ. The application, I was reading about Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite missionaries, by the way. He's a stud. If you don't know who he is, Google him. He's great. But he was one of the first missionaries to go to inland China. I said that like Trump. China. But he went into China, and <laughs> I can't stop. Anyways, and in his ministry, he struggled because he was trying to be as holy as the work he was doing. He was trying to be this great spiritual giant and everybody thought he was this great spiritual guy because he was willing to be a missionary to people who had never heard of Jesus before. And, and he said, man, I, I really struggle with depression and I struggled with, with, with doubt because I would fast, I would try all these efforts to be holy in the sight of God. And then he got a letter from a friend and it changed his life and his ministry forever. But the friend said in this letter, quote, The Lord Jesus received his holiness begun. The Lord Jesus cherished his holiness advancing. The Lord Jesus counted upon as never absent would be holiness complete. To let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification is what I would live for by his grace. Abiding, not striving, nor struggling looking off unto him, trusting him for present power. It's about abiding, not achieving. It's, about, it's not about struggling for holiness. 
It's about surrendering to the holiness of Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me, I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. My life is an exchange, not a me change. And walking and treasuring and cherishing the beauty and the wonder that Jesus took my place, that he loves me, and believing by faith through the Holy Spirit that he is with me. This is the dynamics of human transformation that Jesus gives to us. His very person, his very life. And so thinking about that, just this week, let me give you a few biblical words that you will hear in church, that you've heard in church growing up, or that you'll hear in church for the rest of your life, and I want you to think about these words, biblical words, church words, to look at differently if transformation is a heart transformation. The first word that you will always hear in church that I want you to think about differently in light of this passage is faith. Now, faith in a legalistic, tradition-oriented environment, faith is a virtue. Faith is a great thing you do for God. You got to have great faith for God to accept you. That's tradition. That's legalism. But under this teaching of Jesus, faith is not a virtue. It's a confession. Faith is saying, I can't do it on my own. That no tradition, no diet, nothing outside of me will help me. The only thing I have is you, Jesus. I come with empty hands. Faith is not about our strength. Faith is admitting our weakness. And when you hear the word faith in church or you hear the word faith from the preacher, remember that faith is not a virtue. It's not something that you do. It's something you receive from God. The second word... I want you to think about is the word Bible. Jesus says, you nullify the word of God with your tradition. That you change what the Bible is about. And in a traditional legalistic structure, the Bible is man's attempt to reach to God. It's a, it's a ladder. You got to step up on the, on the Bible. It's the mediator between you and God. And that's why they create all these traditions underneath the Bible because it's so important. We've got to create a, a bunch of little rules to get up to the Bible and then the Bible is going to be our way to reach up to God and, and to get to him. But in fact, under Jesus' teaching, the Bible is not man's attempt to reach God. It is God speaking down to man where he's at. It's God speaking to people in their life and revealing himself through scriptures to where they are. It needs no extra rules. It needs no extra steps. It's God coming down to us and speaking the gospel to us where we're at. And so when you read this book, read it as if God is speaking to you, not as an attempt for you to speak to God. And the final biblical word I want you to think about this week in light of what Jesus is teaching is the word grace. And some traditions take grace and they mean that well, it doesn't matter anymore what we do, that wickedness, evil, sin, all those things, those are, those are in the past, and grace is, is a replacement 
to holiness, that, that grace now takes the place of a holy lifestyle, of a righteous lifestyle. And under Jesus' teaching, that's not true. In fact, grace, as Paul Tripp used to like to say, Paul Tripp says, grace is not replacing holiness. It is a new method to holiness, a new way of dealing with holiness. In particular, grace is the relational power and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ so that I can be a transformed person and begin to take steps towards holiness in my life. The human transformational dynamics of Jesus Christ is heart transformation that he gives to all of us as we surrender to him. And that's why we preach the gospel. It's why we want to make more and better disciples for Jesus. That's why we exist as a church is, is not to try to attempt to do great things for God, but to remember the greatness of God for all who believe in him. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up the Bible, to to read it, to preach it, to teach it, to hear it. And beginning with myself, I just pray that your word would accomplish all that you would want it to in my life. That ultimately I would be united to Jesus and that he would change my heart. Lord, we're all at different places dealing with different things, but may it be your love and your gospel that shines through. We want to be disciples. We want to follow you in a fallen world, but we can't do that without your help. So God, give us that grace. We thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.